today's scripture, Luke 5, 12 to 16. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Amen. Hey, everyone. Long time no see. Uh, My name is Dan Sadler. I'm one of the pastors here. And I would love to pray for us. And then we're going to jump into this passage from Luke 5. Uh, Father, you make a promise that says where two or more gather in your name, you're present. And so Amanda has already said it, but we pray it again. We want to be present to your presence. And the reality is that a lot of us bring a lot of anxiety and worry and concerns and plans and lists of tasks into this place and space today. But we want you to declutter our minds and make space in our hearts so that we can wake up to your presence. God, we love you. We're thankful for you. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all those people said, amen. Amen. Uh, There are moments that if disrupted, disrupt much more than just those moments. On January 27th, 1946, Martin Luther King Jr. was already at a breaking point. He thought that the Montgomery boycott in response to Rosa Parks' protest on that bus would only last a few weeks. But it was now clear to him that the city of Montgomery was not going to back down. And so the day prior, on January 26, 1946, he was pulled over and arrested for going 30 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone and immediately was imprisoned. Upon his late release, he went home and arrived to a new round of death threats and unanimous letters threatening both himself and his whole family, including his children. And so it was no surprise that as he laid his head on his pillow that night, he could not sleep. And in the middle of the night, he finally called his attempts to rest easily quits, quit. He got up, he went downstairs for a cup of coffee, and years later in one of his famous sermons, he said this about that late night and that anxiety-filled moment at his kitchen table. He said, and I bowed down over that cup of coffee, and I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer and I said, Lord, I am done. I'm down here trying to do what is right, but I must confess now that I am weak and that I am faltering and that I am losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice say to me, Martin Luther, stand up. Stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the world. There have been so many of these critical moments where people have been surrounded by silence and these silent specific moments have become somewhat catalytic for their own lives, for the lives of their families, their neighborhood, and even nations. 
And I can't help but think, what would have happened that specific night if Martin Luther was hunched over that cup of coffee and at that moment of critical quiet received another Instagram notification on his smartphone? Or another text message? Or another phone call from a telemarketer telling him that he won a free cruise or got sidetracked as he read the latest outrage from his Republican or Democrat friend on Facebook. And see, there are moments that if disrupted, disrupt much more than just that moment. Moments are of quiet and silence are paramount when it comes to our calling and our vocations. What would happen if he had an iPhone? What if that moment of quiet never came? What if he was numb to that inner voice because of the noise of his outer world? I am old enough to remember this crazy mythical time period where we experienced something called boredom. I remember the days where I would stand in a grocery store line with my mother and all you could do was stand in the line. I remember going to Dr. Berger's orthodontist office and stepping into the elevator and pushing the button, knowing that the only thing you could do in an elevator was actually stand in an elevator. And once in a while, some guy that thought he was Mr. Rogers would come along and decide that he would talk to you, because what else would you do when you didn't have this digital appendage to look down at? A recent Microsoft survey answered that 77% of people said that when nothing is grabbing their attention, they reach immediately for their smartphone. There's actually a new fad in Silicon Valley called dopamine fasting, where people make it to a retreat center sometime for days at a time to detox from their technology because at a neurological level, every second that we are in the room with a smartphone, it is screaming at us in all caps, PICK ME UP. You hit a weird bump on the bus or take a weird turn on the train and feel a vibration and almost simultaneously people from around the train reach to their pocket wondering if that vibration is another call. And what we find in Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and in Jesus' life and in many saints of the old and so many of the people that have actually influenced us in our lives is that it is in these quiet moments that they experience so much change and help us experience so much of it as well. All of these moments of quiet, they're portals to wake up to God's presence. And these moments in this cultural moment are almost extinct. The great threat of the digital age is that it's actually robbing us of presence. Presence with God, presence to others, presence even with our own soul. And this is a problem because when we open up the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read about Jesus' life, what he proclaims over and over is that the kingdom of God is for those who hear and those who see and those who listen and those who look and are attentive and actually present. That's why so many of his teachings end with those who have ears, let them, and those who have eyes, let them see. It's all about presence. And one of the things that we say here at Mosaic is that God loves you so much, he will only actually meet you where you really are, which means that presence is potentially the most spiritual practice and that if churches actually understood and came to the realization that the great 
the great threat to the faith is not hedonism or paganism or Islam or sexual orientation or anything else but distraction, our faith would look very different in the way that we practiced it. If we woke up to the reality that distraction is one of the largest enemies of the faith, the way we practice our faith would look truly different. As the Quaker Douglas Steer once said, we suffer from interior immigration, where we are here in body, but from an interior standpoint, our mind and our emotions are missing. They're elsewhere. We're limited humans trying to be omnipresent, failing to do so almost every single moment of every single day. And so today we talk about quiet. Evangelical Protestants would call it the quiet place. Charismatic Pentecostals would call it the secret place. Catholic brothers and sisters would call it just quiet. It's what we talk about today. And we ask and hopefully answer some of the question, why is silence and solitude so pivotal to this specific moment for our spirituality? Which brings us to the passage that Brian just read. Jesus is interrupted. He's interrupted by a man covered with leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground. He begs him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reaches out his hand. He touches the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left. That's messed up. P.S. Just want to, let's continue to wake up to, to that reality that we're talking about a God who looks exactly like Jesus. And Jesus is walking around touching people and healing them fully. Then Jesus ordered, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded to your cleansing as a testimony to them. What are you doing, little boy? Did you go sit with grandma and grandpa or sit with Isaiah or go to Tots, but you just can't waltz around like you own the place, buddy. Real quick, sidetrack, outside of little Judah. This is another one of those moments where Jesus is showing there's a different way between his kingdom and most world religions. See, most world religions would say, hey, make sacrifices, pay whatever you got to pay, do all of the right things, and then maybe you'll be healed. Maybe then you'll have salvation. Maybe you'll experience God's intimacy and freedom. But here Jesus is showing us again in a symbolic fashion, no, I love you, I'm for you, I made you, so you're healed because that's who I am. I'm a healer. Now you can go do some good things. That's the difference between world religion, most world religion, and the gospel. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. Now that word lonely in its original language is Rama or Rama, which means the quiet place or the wilderness or the desert. Really, it's a place void or free from any kind of stimuli. And he withdraws to the lonely place not for a, a day, off of work. He doesn't withdraw to this lonely place to fold some laundry or to binge out on Netflix, not because he's an introvert and is just sick of people. He actually withdraws to this lonely place to pray. It's very intentional. Now, Luke doesn't give us the access to what type of prayer this is, but I can't help but speculate that this is the, the resting or the abiding that Jesus would later talk about in the Gospel of John. 
I think of prayer the, the way that one of my favorite authors speaks of it. His name is Ronald Rollheiser, a, a Catholic author. He says, prayer is like relaxing into God's goodness. You ever thought about prayer that way? Relaxing into God's goodness. Almost every morning, including this one, Judah, that little gremlin that was just walking up and down the aisle, is my four-year-old boy. He gets up and he comes into my room and it's usually around 6.30 a.m. And if it's around 6.30 a.m., I give him the permission by pulling up the co- covers off of me and welcoming into into the bed. If it's before 6.30 a.m., I just look at him and the cover does not come up and he knows that's a sign to walk right back into his bedroom and go back to sleep. But this morning he gets up at about 6.20 a.m., 6.30 a.m., and he walks in and I go like this. He's straight face looking at me and I open up the cover and he looks at me with this big smile and then he just falls into bed with me. Loves it. You ever thought about prayer as just releasing all the ways the world tries to define you and falling back into the rest of God, relaxing into God's goodness? Theophan, the recluse, which is such a better name than Dan, said, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seen within you. See, what all these authors and theologians and mentors are getting at is a type of prayer that looks a little bit more like resting than working, where you rest in God, where you rest with God. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does this type of lonely prayer, this type of desert secret place prayer nine different times. The more in demand Jesus was, the more influential Jesus was, the more authoritative Jesus was, the busier Jesus was, the more Jesus actually withdrew which is completely counterintuitive for us. The more things spin out of chaos, the harder we work, the more we dig in. But somehow Jesus knew the best work would always come out of rest instead of the best rest coming out of exhausting work. Your spirituality and silence are significantly linked together. This was the type of prayer that feels like resting versus working. And what we see throughout the gospel accounts and throughout the history of the church is that this type of withdrawing to the lonely place, the secret place, the desert, was so important to Jesus, so central to who he was, that when he got in front of his apprentices, those who just didn't want to believe about some God up there somewhere, but actually wanted to follow the way of Christ, he would teach them, which brings us to Matthew 6. He looks at a bunch of disciples or students and he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners and in Times Square to be seen by others. But truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, you go into your room. There's that remas word again. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now a few important pieces of this little piece of scripture. Jesus starts out, he says, when you pray, not if you pray. There's an underlying assumption to the way of Jesus that says if you actually want to be a part of the way of Jesus versus just some type of Christian culture, you actually pray. You take time to talk to God, yell at God, scream at God, listen for God. That's what you do. It's assumed. But you need to take note that this also isn't about the content of prayer. This was about why, where you pray, location, and how you pray, posture. Jesus is stressing this external environment. 
He's going, when, when you withdraw, here's the type of place you go to. You go alone. You, you get a car if you have the means, and you get out of the city. You go to a park. You find that little edge of Cornell's campus where no one is. You shut yourself in the closet, which I have done before many times over when there's too many children in my home. But you find an external space of solitude and silence even for two or three minutes because when we start to cultivate the external, we start to cultivate the internal silence and solitude that is so desperately needed to follow Jesus. See, many of you, if you actually followed me around, you go, oh, this guy, man, six kids, a couple churches that he's trying to care for. He's got this. He's waking up in the morning and he's spending time praying. In the middle of the day, he's even getting like 10, 15 minutes. And then at night and then once a week, he's got some extended time of prayer. He's, he's, he is spiritually mature. But if you had a window to what was going on in here, when I prayed, you'd be like, why am I following this guy? Because the stuff that just is reeling through my head and heart, when I cultivate that external space, it's just noisy. I'm thinking about all the concerns I have with my kids, what they have coming up, what I haven't done, how I'm going to to make my wife happy and not angry at me and how I'm going to serve her and how I'm going to make sure I get communication to Melissa so that she doesn't get angry at me and on and on and it just reels. But this passage is saying, if you cultivate external space, what should follow is some internal space of solitude and quiet. And this is where the real work of experiencing God happens. Your spirituality and your silence and silence are significantly linked. It's why Henri Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, says, without silence, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. It's why the Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross said, silence is God's first language. It's why Mother Teresa said, God is a friend of silence. And it's why modern-day contemporary theologian and author Richard Foster says, our adversary, the devil, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us involved in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. So I want you to hear the importance of this before I turn a corner here. What we're hearing from theologians, what we're hearing from Jesus, what we're hearing from the Apostle Paul, what we're hearing from saints of the old is that you cannot thrive spiritually. You can't actually follow Jesus without silence and solitude. And what we're hearing is that the enemy of God knows this and understands this strategy completely. And we live in the most noisy attention deficit time in the history of the world. Are you understanding the importance of this? Your spirituality and silence are intricately linked together. And so four things that you can expect to experience if you are actually courageous enough to start the practice of creating and cultivating external and internal silence and solitude. First, in the quiet, we face down evil as we encounter reality. See, the majority of us think about solitude as our own little quiet time and devotion. And so we get our coffee and we get our blanket and, and then we post it on Instagram that we're, you know, having this sweet little time with the Lord But this is not the solitude of Jesus who went to the Remus to face Satan. 
or John the Baptist who went into the desert to change the trajectory of Israel, or St. Anthony of the 4th century who sold everything and lived as a hermit to pray and intercede for the church, spurring on what we now know as the monastic movement. If you go to the Celtic land of Ireland, one of the first things you would see coming from the, the west to the east is some rock formations called Skellig Michael. Skellig Michael was a rock landmass that kind of protected the rest of mainland from the, uh, the, the, the Atlantic winds. And over a thousand years ago, monks went out there naming it Skellig, which means island, and Michael named after the Michael who did battle against Satan. And they set up homes in the loneliness of Skellig Michael, this space and place, where they lived and would go and do battle in prayer against Satan in the waters of chaos to keep the country safe from principalities and powers. For generations, we've heard of priests and pastors and lay leaders in churches that continued to thank the monks of Skellig Michael who would sit there and intercede for hours every day for their country. We have a little community center in Sunnyside on 46th and 43rd, and in the back is a little prayer room, and I just encourage people with the keyless entry. I'm like, go in. I don't care if it's 6 a.m. I don't care if it's 6 p.m. You go in, you close that door, and you pray. It's our little Skellig Michael of Sunnyside where we are just interceding for people, praying that 10 years from now there would be hundreds of people going in and out of that space, interceding for the needs of Queens and Roosevelt Island and Manhattan and the Bronx and Staten Island. I don't know how I just got Staten Island in there, but we're going to pray for Staten Island too. See, solitude wasn't a, a place to feel warm and fuzzy, but a, a place to face evil outside of us, but also inside of us. Henri Nouwen wrote, wrote this once. Solitude, he writes, isn't a private therapeutic place. It is the place of conversation and conversion where the old self dies and the new man or the new woman occurs. Solitude is the furnace of our transformation. Without it, we remain victims of our society, manipulated and entangled with our false selves. Elijah, in the book of Kings, finds himself on a mountain when God intervenes and speaks to him, asking him the question, what are you doing here? And I like, what are you doing here, Elijah? Like, what are, what are you doing here, Elijah? An invitation to explore what's going on internally. Beneath the heart, beneath the motives. We think about evil always as external and something that other forces and other people do, but it is usually unchecked motives of the heart that spur on the majority of evil in our society and in our lives and in our families. And so for me, it's been on silent walks throughout woods that I've asked so many times, What are you what are you doing? And I've heard God ask, Dan, what are you doing? Why are you really leading new churches? Is it because you've been invited into it by God? Or are you just a control freak and need to lead stuff? I've been asked those questions on walks and solitude and silence. Or why, why are you angry at Amanda? For real though. Or why are you resentful of this colleague, Dan? What's really below the surface here? Because it's the stuff down here that will eventually leak out if we don't sit with it and expose it and find some type of truth from God in it. 
Reality is hard to bear, but it's where God meets us and where God defeats the internal evil that usually is the culprit of external evil. Our spirituality and silence are significantly linked. It's in the quiet that we face down evil, but two, we also in the quiet experience the love of God. And this is much more short. We don't just hear about it, but we experience it. The Apostle Paul would continue to write about knowing God, that you might know God was always his prayer. But that word know is not like a, a mental assent or a cognitive agreement. That word know, that's an experiential knowing. Like I know my wife Amanda. It's experiential And I'm convinced that one of the reasons so many church folk live with the facts of God without the experience of God is because we're just too busy. We have all the information about his presence. We've just never slowed down and shut up enough to be present to his presence. And this is a huge issue in my life. I have to fight for any type of silence and solitude. The other thing we do is is we just assume that God's going to be on our timeline. And so we're chaotic and busy all week long, 12, 13, 14 hours a day, some of you 15 hours a day. You're working, complete chaos, busyness, packed agendas, and then once every few weeks you're like, I'll go to church on Sunday. And you expect that that's going to be the hour, maybe hour 15 minutes if Amanda is really long, that God is going to wake you up to his presence. I do it all the time. I assume that God's going to be on my timeline instead of cultivating practices of presence where there's solitude and silence on a regular day-to-day basis. Your spirituality and silence are significantly linked. In the quiet is where we actually finally experience God, really experience God. Thirdly, in the quiet, we yield. I like to talk a lot. You guys know this. When I started leading a college ministry years ago, we had a few hundred college students, and there was this one young woman that I remember. Her name was Erin Vanert. She was fiery, and she was the one that would always challenge me and, and push back on leadership decisions. And I remember one day Erin sat down with me, and she critiqued some leader de- leadership decision that, that I had made, and I started to push back with my words, and her response was, Dan, I'm not, listen, I am not going to get in an argument of words with you. You're too good with your words. I will never make any sense if we go toe-to-toe with words. And I thought to myself, shoot, I do try to control the narrative a lot with my words. But it's in the quiet that I'm actually forced to reflect on all the ways that I've tried to control my life or the people in my life to get the things that I need to feel happy and content and safe. And this is really important because control is always going to be the enemy of dependence and trust, which has to be a priority to have a real experience of relationship with God. And you know this and I know this in our heart of hearts. A controlling person is a scary person. When I feel like my kids are out of control and I step in to try and control the situation, it usually doesn't look good for me. Me trying to control my kids, not simple discipline, but like trying to control the environment and come in with a strong hand, it just it never, it never is a good look. But it's in the quiet that I I release that need for control. It's this silent declaration that I don't need to be king. That I don't need to manipulate my agenda. 
that I don't need to force things to happen. I come to a place where Ignatius of Loyola calls it freedom or indifference, where the French mystics call it detachment, where we reprioritize our desires and we once again go, God, you're God, I'm not. I forgot, but I just, I'm reminding myself right now, I'm not God, you are. And we still have a ton of those desires, we just don't need to see them fully satisfied for us to be peaceful and content, right? Because all of a sudden we're living in light of reality, which is that I'm a kid, supposedly most alive when I'm dependent upon my father who's good and for me. You see this in Jesus in Gethsemane, where Jesus has desires. He's like, if you can, take this cup from me. I don't want this. And he sets it on the table. And he releases this illusion of control and he steps into what the Father has for him. We talk about that phrase, take up your cross and follow me. I kind of, we got to die to ourselves if we're going to follow Jesus. We talk about that phrase a lot within the Christian culture. And often it has this tone of difficulty, right, where we need to to grit it out and, and bear it. Like that's what we hear when we hear, take up your cross and follow me. But I've been wondering a little bit about death, and I obviously am not a, um, I don't know about it, because it's never happened to me, right? But I, th- I think death is just something that happens. Like, I don't have to try hard to do it, right? It, it's actually the opposite of doing something. It's something that happens to us. We actually don't do anything. We yield. We let go. We surrender. It happens. I've watched this with so many of our loved ones in this community over the past five or six years. And this is kind of what happens when we stop talking and stop striving and stop trying to define ourselves by the way that the city wants us to define ourselves. We just get to this place of surrender. Your spirituality and silence are significantly linked. It's how we face down evil. It's how we experience the love of God. And it's how we yield actually taking back our right place as dependent kids of the king. That's what we were made for. Not to manipulate our environment. Not to have control of our agendas. Last is this. In quiet, we hear God's gentle whisper. And because of it, we return to the world. This comes back to the book of Kings. You should read that when you get home today. I think it's Kings 19 with Elijah. He hears the voice of God. And it's not the preacher with the big bullhorn that you see standing around the city, right? It's instead this whisper. And I think this is important because I think one of the things that God is trying to do is to lead us and to pastor us like the shepherd that he speaks of in Psalm 23 as he leads us by still waters. As he refreshes our souls to rest, to a place of trust and space and freedom. And it's in this context that we hear that Elijah actually then gets his assignment. Elijah hears the whisper of God and then he goes to do something that will ultimately change the trajectory of the nation. This is important from a real superficial level. I want to just stress this importance. Silence often precedes assignment. Silence often precedes assignment. It's where Jesus often got his assignment from the Father as to what was next. 
It's, it's, where, it's where Paul, Paul was in the desert when he received his assignment to go and communicate the love of God to, to the non-Jews or Gentiles. It was in the stillness and silence of the upper room where the disciples or students of Christ received much of their next steps. And when we're unclear on our next steps, when we're wondering what's next, what do we do? If you're anything like me, I strive, I control, I put out all the options. I could do this, or I could do this, or if I do this, this might happen. If I do this, this might happen. But no, silence often is the thing that precedes assignment. We withdraw from people, and this is so important, especially for you introverts in here. We withdraw from people for people. Because when this happens and we cultivate external silence that then begins to grow an internal steadfastness and silence, we return as God's agents of love. I, I am an attention deficit extrovert. Like, I love people. That's the only way I've been able to survive with six kids in that little apartment. Like, I love people. But I long to be a contemplative. I long to be somebody that has practices of silence and solitude and Sabbath for the, faith, for, the, for the sake of good activism. We have way too many activists who lack substance. They go out and do a bunch of great things. They just do them with the wrong motive because they haven't cultivated that internal silence that's asking the important questions of why they're doing what they're doing. When we spend time in the quiet, we often come out with a real sense of compassion and clarity. I mean, think through this with me just for a sec as we close. When we, when we go to silence, often I'll go to silence mad at people. Whether it's, uh, whether it's Amanda, whether it's my children, I'll, I'll go to silence mad at people. And then as I sit in silence, I start to think about all of the ways that I've misstepped. <laughs> And all of the ways that I've screwed up. And I slowly but surely kind of acknowledge my brokenness and God meets me there. He does. I don't always feel it, but he meets me there. And it develops a a capacity for compassion in me as I go back out to interact with my wife and my children and my colleagues and our advisory team. Like that's, That's what happens when we get silence and solitude. We come back out different. But it's not just compassion, it's also clarity. Most mornings I do beat, beat Judah getting up and I get to the kitchen table and I get 20 minutes or 30 minutes in before he comes upstairs. And at the end of the quiet time, I'll listen and I'll sit with my journal open with my day's agenda. It's got everything detailed. And Amanda hates it that it's out on the table when she wakes up. She's just like, why are you already in work mode? And I'm not, I'm like, I'm not. Here's what I do. My Listen, I have my journal and my agenda, and I'm asking the question to end. Spirit, what will be pleasing to you today? What would be pleasing to you today? It's actually in these moments a lot of times that I hear, Dan, cancel this meeting. You don't have enough space to breathe today. Or Dan, you are meeting with too many church folk today. And you need to spend some time walking around the city meeting new people that don't know about God's grace and his love. Or Dan, you've put off that meeting with that person that you know you should probably challenge for weeks now. You probably should text them and get them back on that schedule. 
Our spirituality and silence are intricately linked. And so let me end with this as we move into communion. We always say it. God is like Jesus. There is no unchristlikeness in him. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. If you have questions about what God values, we look to Jesus. That is who he is. He's the exact representation of God. And so as you look at the gospel accounts, you see this moment where Jesus starts to speak with this whole new level of authority. And he's healing people like he did in Luke 5 here. And he's teaching people a new way. And it's electric to people. And people begin to start flocking to him, trying to crown him king, trying to have him say out loud that he is the long-awaited Messiah that grandpas have talked about. And yet time and time again, you see Jesus not answer directly, but instead ask another question to them, puzzling them. These weird drop-the-mic questions that he... Then you actually see these moments where he just fades into the background. He teaches with authority and then he just leaves before he's crowned. Because he has stayed in the quiet place with his father, there is a confidence of who he is and who he isn't. There is a confidence about what's next and timing that has been cultivated there. That then leads him to another point. For the day that he is killed, he's standing with Pontius Pilate. Who says, are you who they say they are? All of these people, your people, Jesus, they're saying that you should die, you should be crucified, your hands stretched out, your feet nailed to the cross, a seat propping you up so that your lungs will fill up with blood and you die of asphyxiation. That's what they want from you because they are saying right now that you're blasphemous and you're the king of the Jews. What do you say? And the man that has stayed silent his whole life and his whole ministry slipping into the crowd, back of the crowd, uh, returning question with a question and puzzling people, all of a sudden, now goes yeah that's me because he has spent time in the quiet place with the father because he knows who he is and he knows what he's meant for and we walk around guessing who we are all day long We let the city tell us we are what we do or we are what we have or we are what other people think. God is looking at us going, you have the ability to walk throughout your day in confidence. Moving forward when I tell you to move forward. Remaining still when I tell you to remain still. But all that comes from sitting in my present, being present to it.